السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ الحمد للہ نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respected listeners الله سبحانه وتعالى says in surah al-anbiya وما ارسلناك الا رحمه للعالمين addressing the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam that we have not sent you but as a mercy for all the worlds surah al-anbiya as is suggested by the name actually is a surah in which allah mentions many different prophets alayhi wassalatu wassalam many of them and the one thing which is apparent from the mention of the prophets not just in this surah but elsewhere in the quran is that all of these messengers alayhi salatu wassalam were sent at a specific time to one particular group of people one nation one group of people and also their message was restricted to those people alone and this is true for all the prophets mentioned elsewhere in the quran and even in suratul anbiya alayhim in suratul anbiya the very allah mentions many prophets and then the mention of rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam with this verse wa ma arsalnaka illa rahmatan lil alamin comes at the very end of the surah and prior to saying this to the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam a few verses earlier again the last person that allah speaks of amongst messengers was also the one who came just before the prophet <coughs> sallallahu alaihi wasallam the prophet isa alaihi salam and even with the prophet isa alaihi salam he was sent only to a certain a particular group of people he was not sent with a universal message for all tribes for all nations and for eternity though of course there are great wisdoms in his teaching which are applicable to all ages but and to all peoples but as a messenger what the quran says what the ahadith say is that he was sent only to a specific group of people and that's why in surah as-saff Allah quotes Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam and addressing Banu Israil 
addressing the Israelites. Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam says, Ya Bani Israel, inni Rasulullahi ilaykum, musaddiqan lima bayna yedayya min al-Tawrah, wa mubashiran bi Rasulin yati min ba'di ismuhu wa Ahmed. The O children of Israel, indeed I am Allah's messenger to you, to affirm and to ratify that Tawrah which came before me, and to give you glad tidings of a messenger who shall come after me, whose name will be Ahmed. And even in, even in the Bible, Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam is quoted as having said himself, go not the way of the Gentiles, but rather unto the lost sheep of Israel. Meaning he was sent specifically to the lost sheep of Israel, not to the Gentiles, not to the other nations. And that's what the Qur'an says in Surah Al-Saf. So all of the messengers, والسلام, including the one mentioned just before the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, towards the end of Surah Al-Anbiya, was sent to a specific group of people, to one nation, and for a specific time. But then Allah mentions Prophet Muhammad وسلم, towards the end of this surah, Surah Al-Anbiya, which has been called the Surah of the Prophets. And how does he address the messenger? Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكِ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ And we have not sent you but as a mercy for all the worlds. And the reason Allah says we have not sent you but as a mercy is because indeed his teachings, his religion, his sunnah, his way, the Qur'an that he brought, the religion that he brought, and he himself, all of these things were a mercy. His sharia is a mercy. His person, he himself is a mercy. His teachings, his hadith, his Qur'an, all of this are a mercy. Allah has termed it such. As a person, he was the very embodiment of mercy and rahmah. And Allah sent him to all the worlds. His mercy was for all the worlds, not just for the Arabs. And that's why in various verses throughout the Qur'an, in contrast to the other Prophets, والسلام, Allah make, the Qur'an makes it clear that the mission of the Prophet وسلم, was eternal and universal. In Surah Al-A'raf, the Qur'an says, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسُ إِنِّي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ إِلَيْكُمْ جَمِيعًا الَّذِي لَهُ مُلْكُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ Say, O Messenger of Allah, that, O people, indeed I am Allah's messenger to all of you. That Allah to whom belongs the kingdom of the heavens and the earth. There is no God but He. He gives life and He gives death. In Surah Al-Furqan, Allah begins a surah with the words, Blessed. Is he who revealed the criterion to his servant so that his servant may become a warner to all the worlds? In Surah Al Saba, Allah, Allah again mentions, And we have not sent you but. 
as a giver of glad tidings and as a warner to all of the people, without distinction. Verse after verse of the Quran speaks of the same thing. That Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was sent to all the worlds and not just to the Arabs. And like all the other prophets alayhi salatu And this is why Allah calls him a mercy, not just for his nation, not just for his tribe, not just for the Arabs or the people of his time, but for the worlds, for all the worlds. Just as Allah praises himself in the beginning of the Quran with the words, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, all praise be to Allah, the Lord of the worlds. Allah says his messenger to the same worlds is none other than the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa Now how was a messenger alayhi salatu wasalam a mercy, a rahmah? This topic is so vast that no single book or even a collection of books, no single speech or a lifetime of speeches can do justice to this to just this one aspect of the Prophet person and personality and character, which is his rahmah and his mercy. But just to share a few thoughts, how was the Messenger والسلام, a rahmah for all the worlds? Well, first of all, he was a rahmah for his own people. And if we consider the condition of the Arabs and the land of Arabia, just before the arrival of the Prophet ﷺ, which in many ways was a reflection of other societies and the ethics and morality of many other people throughout the world. It wasn't just the Arabs, and it wasn't just the land of Arabia that was in a moral, ethical, religious crisis. That was a reflection of the situation all over the world. People may have advanced in terms of science and learning and technology and power and wealth and commerce and trade, as is evident from the civilizations of the time. Arabia itself had a number of empires and civilizations that surrounded it. The Sassanid Persian Empire, the Byzantine Roman Empire, the Abyssinian Empire. So, when we say the Arabs and the land of Arabia and the different lands and peoples of the world were in crisis, we're not just talking, we're not simply saying that they were backward or undeveloped. Of course, they reflected the science and learning and technology and the politics and the military advancements of the time. That these were hugely successful empires in terms of culture and civilization and military power, prowess and commerce and wealth and trade and science and learning. But as is the case today, man has conquered a lot. He's flown to the moon. He plans to fly to Mars. He sent his machines, out into space, now even beyond the solar system. Man has dived to the depths of the oceans. Man has navigated the whole globe and subjugated all of the species. 
Man controls the airwaves. Man intends to control the climate and weather, even the rain and winds. Man hopes to even reverse the process of aging. And man hopes to conquer death. Man has conquered a lot. But the one thing he still hasn't conquered is his own soul. Man remains as bestial and as animalistic as he was before all this science and learning and advancements and technology. And this was the case then. They may have been cultured and civilised in terms of learning and science and language and trade and commerce. But when it came to spirituality and morality, ethics, when it came to being humans... They failed miserably, as we are failing. And so the Arabs and the land of Arabia reflected this reality before the arrival of the Prophet ﷺ. Without speaking of the situation elsewhere, just the Arabs themselves, when it came to morality, they had some idea of nobility. And they had many good characteristics and traits One shouldn't think that the Arabs were deprived of all good qualities. No. The Arabs had many good characteristics, many brilliant qualities. But again, these were wasted because of certain great weaknesses. And this is why when once the Prophet ﷺ was asked by the companions, that who amongst us is best who amongst us is the best? So the Prophet said, The best amongst you in jahiliyyah, in ignorance, are the best amongst you in Islam. And the meaning of this hadith is that those of you who by your very nature and character possessed good, noble qualities and who exhibited these qualities even in the days of ignorance, Islam will bring about the best in you. This, it will improve even on this. So, <clears throat> the Arabs were endowed with many good qualities, but they were wasted in the presence of other hugely detrimental characteristics. And as a nation, the Arabs had a number of great weaknesses. In fact, To give you an example, the Arabs were considered wild and ungovernable. None of the empires surrounding Arabia wanted to actually rule directly over the Arabs. None of them. The Sasani Persian Empire was huge and powerful, and its rival was the Byzantine Roman Empire. These two Empires were the superpowers of the time in every way, in culture, language, learning, military power, in terms of civilization. These were the two superpowers of the time. And yet, none of them actually wanted to rule the Arabs directly. What both of them did is, as is an age-old problem. They used some of the Arabs to control the rest. So the Sasani Persian Empire 
had as their allies and vassals the Banu Lachm in the north, east and the east of Arabia. And the Byzantine Romans had the Sassanid, uh, the Byzantine Romans had the Banu Ghassan and the Banu Taghlib. All of these were native Arabs who lived along the north of Arabia. Banu Tay, Banu Taghlib, Banu Ghassan and Banu Lachm. And all of these, because of the influence of Byzantine Rome, and even because of Persian influences, had become Christian. And so what these two empires did is that they used these Arabs, who were to the north of Arabia and closer to their empires, as a kind of buffer zone between them and the wild Arabs of Central Arabia. They were ungovernable. And that's how they viewed them. None of the superpowers laid a direct claim on Arabia. That's how the Arabs were viewed by others. And they themselves, there was no authority, no, sen- no law, no system of law. They fought endlessly with each other in internecine warfare, a war of attrition. A single feud between two families would be caused by one camel straying into the pasture of another. And then that would escalate to a war between clans, eventually tribes. And this war, these battles and this war would continue for a whole generation. The Arabs, when it came to morality, they considered people, women, they considered women as property and chattel. Chattel. So much so that a son would inherit as wealth his stepmother, who was his father's wife. Not his own blood mother, but if his father had married other women who were his stepmothers, but not his natural mother, a son would actually inherit his stepmother or mothers as property from his father. And this is what the Qur'an refers to in its prohibition. They would bury some of the tribes, some members of some tribes, not all, would bury their daughters alive at birth. When it came to worship, the Arabs had lost the monotheism and the tawheed of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam, Sayyidina Ismail alayhi salam. Now, even the Kaaba and its precincts had been contaminated with the presence of more than 360 idols. Every tribe had an idol. Every clan had an idol. In fact, every home had its own statue. And on leaving the home, and on entering the home in Makkah al-Mukarramah especially, and elsewhere as well, the Arabs would pay homage to the statue before leaving the house and upon re-entering the home. Their belief of God, of idols, of worship was such that one story should illustrate this very clearly, and rather humorously as well, that the Arabs, they would... In fact, Imam Bukhari relates a hadith from one of the Sahaba who says that we used to worship all, all kinds of idols, paraphrasing the hadith, all kinds of idols. We would take one God and we would worship him. Then when we found another God who we felt was better, we'd abandon the first and worship the second. And in this way it would continue. And it's also narrated that the Arabs, when they would travel, and they would stop at any location on the journey. 
They would alight and set up camp to rest and to feed themselves. The Arabs would actually go out and gather four stones. The three worst ones they would use as three stones to rest their cauldron or pot on to cook. And the fourth stone, which was the best out of the four, they would plant it to one side and actually worship it. Pray to it. And then when they would resume their journey and break their camp, they'd abandon the three stones on which they placed their cauldron and they'd also abandon the god that they had worshipped for a day or two. Or for a few hours. That was the reality of the Arabs' religion and their view of Allah, of God. It was in this state, Sayyidina Ja'far radiallahu anhu, who in the first hijra and emigration to Abyssinia, was a spokesman for the believers in the court of Najashi, the Negus, the, the Abyssinian emperor. The story is quite long. The Quraysh sent a delegation to Najashi's court in Abyssinia so that they could influence him and convince him that these people who had emigrated from Mecca in the fifth year of the Prophet wasallam's call to Islam, that they were vagabonds, troublemakers, and that they should be returned to Arabia and refused asylum in Abyssinia. So, a great gathering took place and a great hearing. Najashi was very just, just as the Prophet wasallam had said he was. And he, although he had diplomatic and commercial relations with the Quraysh, he refused to listen to them until the Muslims had an opportunity to defend themselves. So they appointed Sayyidina Ja'far as their spokesman. And he very succinctly and eloquently and beautifully described their beliefs, and the Prophet ﷺ's mission. And by the end of it, Najashi was left weeping. And just to quote some of what he said, he said, since Najashi told them, he said to them, that what is it, you have sought asylum in my land, and yet what do these Arabs of the Quraysh say of you? Your own kinsmen. They say that you have introduce new religion, which is neither the religion of your forefathers, nor is it our religion, since Najashi was a Christian. So Sayyidina Ja'far spoke, and he described the condition of the Arabs before the coming of Rasulullah And he mentioned that they would eat carrion, they would bury their, that they would, uh, the powerful amongst them would oppress and devour the weak. They committed all manner of sins. They worshipped many gods and idols. And in this lowly state, Rasulullah came to them and delivered them from darkness into light. Then he spoke about Sayyidina Isa and his mother Maryam and by the end of it, Najashi was left weeping. So this was the state of the Arabs before the arrival of Rasulullah When he arrived... And when he gave his call to Islam, within a few years, everything changed. And when we say within a few years, we shouldn't belittle those few years. Today, despite all the wealth, resources, and technology available to humans, 
it takes a very long time to achieve many things, despite all the resources. Then imagine in Arabia, without any resources, lack of means and lack of resources, lack of ability, lack of manpower. And considering the Prophet ﷺ's own condition and circumstances, what he, the Messenger of Allah, achieved in 23 years was remarkable. That was a miracle in itself. He didn't just change the land and the politics of the country. Most importantly, he changed the hearts and the minds of all the people. And to give you an example, the, this is how he was a mercy. Having stayed in Mecca for 13 years, Prophet wasallam emigrated to Medina. And the reason why he emigrated to Medina is that the people of Medina themselves approached him and requested him to come to Medina and rule over them, preside over them. And the reason they approached the Prophet ﷺ for this is that the condition of Medina, which was known as Yathrib, before the Prophet ﷺ emigrated there, was dire indeed. The city of Yathrib, prior to its renaming as Medina, was a famous oasis in Arabia. And it was populated and settled by many Arabs and other tribes. There were five main tribes in total, three Jewish tribes and two major Arab tribes. And the strange thing was that these two major Arab tribes, known as Aws and Khazraj, were originally one tribe. They were known as Banu Qayla. Despite being one single tribe, over the years, feuds and disputes and battles had led to a permanent state of war between the Aws and the Khazraj. And the three remaining Jewish tribes were not left unaffected. They joined in. So two of the Jewish tribes allied themselves with one of the Arab tribes, and the other Arab tribe, uh, the Jewish tribe, allied itself with the other Arab tribe. So now you had a permanent state of war between the five most powerful tribes in the huge settlement of Medina, of Yathrib. And this war was such that it lasted a whole generation. A whole generation. Children had been born, grown up, and were now adults. And they were fighting in a war that began long before their birth. And the origins of the, of the war had become obscured in history. All they knew now is that they were enemies of each other. And they were at each other's throats. The settlement of Yathrib, this whole city, was in danger of collapsing altogether. So some of the nobles and wiser leaders of Medina, of Yathrib, when they heard of the Messenger wasallam, they approached him. And they wanted him to come. They knew of his teachings. They embraced Islam at his hands. And they requested him to come and rule over them in Medina. In order to put a stop to this warfare. And this state of tension in the whole city. Prophet ﷺ went. Aws and Khazraj, the two main tribes. They were bitter enemies of one another. And yet, it was the compassion and the rahmah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam that upon his arrival, within a short time, these the whole warring city of Medina 
became the, at least the Arab tribes of Aus and Khazraj, those who embraced Islam amongst them, became one united body of believers. And Allah refers to this in the Quran, Surah Ali Imran. We often hear of this verse, we, many of us know the translation, but how many of us really know the background to the revelation of this verse? Allah says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu attaqullaha haqqa tuqatihi wa la tamutunna illa wa antum muslimoon wa'atasimu bihablillahi jami'an wa la tafarraku wazkuru ni'matullahi alaykum iz kuntum a'da'a fa'allafa bayna qulubikum fa'asbahtum bin'imatihi ikhwana wa kuntum ala shafa hufratim minan nar fa'anqadakum minha Allah says, O believers, be conscious of Allah as you should be conscious of Him. And do not die except as Muslims. And hold fast to the rope of Allah altogether. And do not disperse, do not differ amongst yourselves. And remember Allah's gift and blessing on you. When you were enemies of one another, then Allah united your hearts. And thus you became, through his blessing, brothers. Even though before, you were on the edge of a pit of the fire. Then Allah saved you and delivered you from it. In this way does Allah make clear his signs to you so that you may find guidance. If we just reflect on these verses, two verses. Allah is actually speaking about the situation in Medina between the Aus and the Khazraj prior to the arrival of Rasulullah Imagine how dire the situation must have been. That Allah himself describes it in the following words. When you were enemies of one another. One. Two. You were on the edge of a pit of the fire. And Allah delivered you from it. That was the situation in Medina. And yet, with the Prophet wasallam, through him, through his presence... Allah Azza wa Jal united these same bitter enemies of one another in such a way that Allah testified to their brotherhood and Allah said, فَأَصْبَحْتُمْ بِنِعْمَتِهِ إِخْوَانَا that through His blessing you became brothers. Allah knows the conditions of the heart, or the condition of the hearts. And within a short while, the very same people that Allah described as being bitter enemies of one another on the edge of a pit of a fire, Allah says they were now brothers. Not just in word, and not just in deed, but indeed by heart. And how was that achieved? That was achieved through Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Allah's mercy, Allah's tawfiq, and through the compassion and the mercy of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Allah says again in Surah Ali Imran, فَبِمَا رَحْمَةٍ مِّنَ اللَّهِ لِنْتَ لَهُمْ وَلَوْ كُنْتَ فَضًّا غَلِيذَ الْقَلْبِ لَنْفَضُّوا مِنْ حَوْلِكَ Till the end of the verse, Allah addressing the Messenger وسلم, says, It was through some mercy that you were lenient and soft towards them, i.e., the companions. Had you been fadhan, harsh of tongue, ghalidhan, hard of heart, ghalid al qalb, if had you been harsh of tongue, ghalid al qalb, hard of heart, they would have all dispersed and scattered from around you. Meaning, again, what I mentioned about the situation of the Arabs, they were considered by others and the superpowers of their time as being a wild bunch of Bedouin, ungovernable, 
And the Arabs were fiercely independent, without doubt. They were proud warriors. They were a warrior nation. Proud warriors. And fiercely independent. They would not accept anyone else to rule over them. Even the superpowers of the time couldn't achieve that. And that's evident in many tribal societies. Fiercely independent. And these same Arabs were fiercely independent, whom these superpowers could not control or rule directly at the time. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa one man, one individual, brought them together and united them in such a miraculous way. How did he achieve it? He achieved it not through force of power and arms, nor through bribes and wealth, he changed and transformed their hearts and mind through the sheer force of his personality and the compassion of his character and his rahmah. And Allah testifies to that. فَبِمَا رَحْمَةٍ مِّنَ اللَّهِ لَهُمْ It was through Allah, some of Allah's mercy that you were soft and lenient towards them, towards the companions. Had you behaved with them any differently? Had you, O Messenger of Allah, been harsh of tongue, hard of heart, these Arabs would have never remained around you. They would have dispersed quickly. They would have scattered. They would have fled from around you. And yet, how the Sahaba radiallahu anhum clung on to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He won over their hearts and their minds through the compassion of his character and through the rahmah which Allah had placed in him. This is why he himself said, Allah says of him, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ And we have not sent you but as a mercy for all the worlds. He himself said the same about himself. In a hadith related by Imam Hakim in his al-Mustadarak from Sayyidina Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu. He says, the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, أَنَا رَحْمَةٌ مُّهْدَى I am a mercy gifted, i.e. to mankind. He was the embodiment of mercy. And his compassion, his rahmah, wasn't just for his companions. It wasn't just for his group. It wasn't just for the believers. It was for the non-believers also. It was for adults, for children. His very character was one of rahmah. Unbelievable. And to give the perfect example, Sayyidina Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu. When Allah says, had you been harsh of tongue or hard of heart, they would have scattered and dispersed from around you. They would have fled. Allah is not speaking of the adults. The Prophet ﷺ's behavior was consistent. This is one of the reasons why he had so many wives. The wives revealed to the ummah his character, his behavior, his privacy, his life at home. So that the ummah would learn from him. And the one remarkable thing about his wives is that not just one wife, not just two, not just three, but all of the wives who have narrated anything about his life at home and about his personality and character are all united in one thing, which is, and this is one other miraculous aspect of the life of the Prophet wasallam, His conduct, his character, and his behavior was no different in the privacy of his home than it was in the full view of the world and the public. He was inside as he was outside. 
In the darkest hours of the night, he was as he was in the brightest moments of the day. In privacy or in public, Rasulullah ﷺ's character remained the same. His deeds, his character, his behavior were consistent. Imagine about any one person, no matter how popular, how powerful, how good, how famous. Everyone has their secrets. Everyone has their embarrassments. Everyone has their indiscretions. Everyone has their skeletons. And no matter what people may think of a person outside, every individual is actually able to maintain, to sustain a facade, a certain impression. We all go to the masjid. How difficult is it to keep a face, to adopt a certain posture and character, a certain demeanour at work, in the masjid, in public, for a few hours, for a few moments. And then when we return home, to remove that cloak and to remove that mask. And to relax and to regress to our original behaviour and our real character. Mice outside are lions at home. Cowards outside are bullies at home. Those who are silent and meek outside are loud and aggressive at home. Family members, loved ones, often often see a change in character. And this is why it's said of those who have personality disorders, that it's almost as though those who know them very well are speaking about a totally different person than what others know them to be. It's like two different personalities. And yet Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam at home, he was exactly the same as he was outside. He was the same with adults as he was with children. And that's remarkable. Look at Sayyidina Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu. How does he speak of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? He says, from a number of different narrations, he says, I served the Messenger wasallam for 10 years. In one narration he says, I was 8 years old when the Prophet wasallam came to Medina. My mother took him, took me to the Messenger wasallam, Umm Salaim. And she said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, there is no man or woman in Medina who has not given you a gift upon your arrival. O oh, Messenger of Allah, I have no gift to offer you. But here is my son, Anas. Take him as your attendant, as your servant. He will wait upon you and he will run your errands. Use him as you wish in your service. Anas ibn Malik anhu says, I then served the Prophet for ten whole years. In those ten whole years... Never once did he say oof to me. As a child. Never once did he say oof to me. His mother had given him to him. And said use him as you wish. As a page boy. As an attendant. As a servant. As an, uh, an errand boy. He will serve you. He will wait upon you. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa How did he treat him? He says... 
However, whichever way you may look at him, one, he was a child. He was an attendant. He was like a servant in the house. He was like a young boy, a young person who ran errands. And yet, how was he treated? Not dismissively, not contemptuously, never berated, never criticised, never shouted at, never interrogated or questioned. Allahu Akbar. He says, I served the Prophet for 10 years. In those 10 years, never once did he say, Uff to me. Uff. And Uff was an expression of exasperation. Prophet never, didn't just never get angry with him. He never even expressed frustration with him. Never even said, Uff. And not only that, Anas Malik continues. He says, He never asked me once, Why didn't you do some, this for something I should have done? And never did he ask me even once, Why did you do this for something I shouldn't have done? And in one narration he says, Never in ten years did he even frown or scowl at me. In ten years. Allahu Akbar. Imagine. That was his behavior. That was his mercy and compassion. With a child. And with adults. Allahu Akbar. <clears throat> Even with non-Muslims. Not just his ummah, but others. Of his ummah, he was so humble. He says... In a hadith later by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his Musnad and Imam Abu Dawood in his Sunan from Sayyidina Salman al-Farsi radiyallahu anhu. He says the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said and prayed, addressing Allah. He said, O oh Allah, ayyuma rajulin min ummati sababtuhu sabbatan aw la'antuhu la'natan fi ghadabi. فَإِنَّمَا أَنَا مِنْ وُلْدِ آدَمْ أَغْضَبُ كَمَا يَغْضَبُونَ وَإِنَّمَا بَعَثْتَنِي رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ فَجَعَلْهَا عَلَيْهِمْ صَلَاةً يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةً Praying to Allah, he said, Oh Allah, if there is any man of my ummah that I have verbally abused, even once, سببته سبتاً, even once, or that I have cursed even once. In my anger, then, oh Allah, I am one of the sons of Adam, one of the children of Adam. I get angry just as they get angry. So maybe in my moment of anger, I've cursed someone or I've verbally abused someone. Then he continues in his dua. But oh Allah, وَإِنَّمَا بَعَثْتَنِي رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ You have only sent me as a mercy for all the worlds. So therefore, oh Allah, if I have abused anyone or cursed anyone in my anger, فَجَعَلْهَا عَلَيْهِمْ صَلَاةً يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةً Then make this curse of mine or this verbal abuse of mine, make it a means of prayer and forgiveness for them on the Day of Judgment. Imam Muslim rahmatullahi alayhi relates a hadith from Sayyidina Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, the believers asked him to curse the pagans. So he gave them a certain reply. And prior to mentioning the hadith, let me give you, the, because the hadith of Sahih Muslim doesn't mention the backdrop, let me give you the backdrop to the to this particular incident. When did this happen? It was actually on the day of the Battle of Uhud. The Muslims initially scored a victory 
But then, after the first wave of success, because of the failure of some of the companions to fully act on the instructions of the Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims suffered a setback. And in that setback, after the initial victory, there was confusion. And the Muslims began retreating. And they were caught in a pincer attack by the from the by the mushrikeen by the pagans of uh, of Mecca from both the front and the back as a result there was confusion the muslims began retreating dispersing and scattering even the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam had to make strategic retreats and very few companions remained with him and on that occasion because of the confusion there were rumors that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam had passed away and but he hadn't passed away, but he had been injured. He, had, he was actually injured in that battle. And blood flowed from his noble body. On that occasion, in that state of fear, of mayhem, of confusion, of retreat, of companions falling around the believers, of many being martyred, of the noble messenger wasallam himself being wounded, in such a perilous state, some of, the Mus- some of the companions in their desperation said to the Prophet ﷺ, or Messenger of Allah, curse the mushrikeen, the Prophet. And this is a hadith of Sahih Muslim related from Abu Hurairah. He says the Prophet ﷺ was asked by some of the Muslims to curse the mushrikeen, the pagans. The Prophet ﷺ's reply, in that state, in the battle of Uhud, in those conditions, was as follows. He said, I have not been sent as one to curse, rather I have only been sent as a mercy. In the battle of Uhud, in that state, in those conditions. That was the background to the hadith. That was a compassion and the mercy of Rasulullah wasallam, young or old. And there's a very beautiful story that illustrates this. It's the story of Thumamut ibn Uthar radiyallahu anhu. Thumamut ibn Uthar radiyallahu anhu was one of the leaders of Banu Hanifa, a tribe of Najd in the eastern part, or shall we say the northeastern part of Arabia. And the region was known as Yamama. So the Prophet once sent a cavalry regiment in that direction. And they returned with Thumamat ibn Uthal as a captive. And he was one of the leaders of Yamama. One of the great leaders. So when they brought him as a captive, he was tied, this is a hadith of Bukhari, he was tied to a pillar in the masjid. The Prophet ﷺ came out. And when he passed by him, he said to him, Ya Thumamah, ma'indak. O Thumamah, what do you have? What do you have to say? So Thumama's reply was, Ya Muhammad, remember, he wasn't a Muslim. So being tied up, he was so confident, because he came from a very powerful tribe, the Banu Hanifa. And the region of Yamama was very fertile, rich. It was actually the breadbasket for Makkah and many other areas. So Thumamat ibn Uthal said, Ya Muhammad, O Muhammad, 
In taqtul, taqtul that. Remember, he was fastened and tied up, and yet he spoke with such force and confidence. Prophet sallallahu said to him, Ya Thumama, ma'indak. Oh Thumama, what do you have? What do you have to say? So Thumama ibn Uthal said, Ya Muhammad, in taqtulni taqtul dhadam. If you kill me, you will kill a man of blood. Meaning, there will be retribution. I am a leader. My tribe is powerful. They will not forgive this blood. And there will be a blood writ. And they will retaliate. And they will avenge my blood. So he said, Ya Muhammad, in taqtulni taqtul dhadam. O Muhammad, if you kill me, you slay a man of blood. وَإِن تُنْعِمْ تُنْعِمْ عَلَى شَاكِرٌ And if you are graceful and favorable to me and show me a favor, then you will show grace and favor to someone who will be grateful. وَإِن تُرِدْ مَالًا And if you seek wealth, فَصَلْمَا شِئْتْ Then ask whatever you want. He was so confident, he said, you can have all the wealth you want. So he gave three replies. If you kill me, you will kill a man of blood. If you are, if you show me favor, you will show favor to someone who will be grateful. And if you want wealth, then ask whatever you want. You will get it. Prophet ﷺ left him tied up. The next day he passed by him. And he said to him, Ya Thumama, ma'indak. O Thumama, what do you have to say? So Thumama ibn Uthal radiyallahu an said, Ya Muhammad, I say to you what I said to you yesterday. In tun'im, tun'im ala shakir. If you show favor, you will show favor to one who is grateful. An interesting point here. Yesterday, he said three things. If you kill me, you will kill a man of blood. If you show favor, you will show favor to one who is grateful. And if it's wealth you want, then ask whatever you want. You will receive. Today, one day later, just a day later, when asked the same question, he doesn't mention two other things, he only mentions one. He says, in he said, Oh Muhammad, I say to you what I said to you yesterday. In tun'im tun'im ala shakir. If you show favor, you will show favor to someone who is grateful. But he said two other things yesterday. Why didn't he repeat them? He said, if you kill me, you will kill a man of blood. And if you want wealth, then ask whatever you want. Because in a single day, with the comings and goings of Rasulullah observing him closely, his behavior, his demeanor, his character, the way he carried himself, the way he conducted himself with his companions, seeing the Muslims in Masjid al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he realized two things with utter conviction and certainty. One, this is not a normal human being. Two, three things. Number two, I said to him, if you will kill me, you will kill a man of blood. He was convinced that the Prophet ﷺ does not have it in his nature and character to do that. And he said, the day before he offered wealth, within a day he realized this is not a man of this world who wants wealth. And that's why on the second day he merely he said, Oh Muhammad, I say to you what I said yesterday, which is, he knew that he does not want wealth. He knew that he would never kill him. He said, O oh Muhammad, I say to you what I said yesterday. In tun'im tun'im ala shakir, if you show favor, 
you will show favor to someone who is grateful. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa left him. Third day he passed by him. And he said, O Thumama, what do you have to say? He said, O Muhammad, I say to you what I said yesterday. He didn't say a word more. Prophet said to the companions, release him. They released him. He went out of the masjid to a palm grove, uh, an area of trees, palm trees. And there, where there was some water, he did ghusl, he bathed. And then he returned to the masjid. And in front of the companions, he stood before the Prophet and he said, O Muhammad, before this day, this is a hadith of Bukhari, and many others have recorded this. He said, before this day, there was no face on the surface of the earth which was more resented and detestable to me than your face. But today, of all the faces on the surface of the earth, yours is the most beloved to me. O Muhammad, before this day, there was no religion on earth that was more detestable to me than your religion. But this day, of all the religions on earth, yours is the most beloved to me. O Muhammad, before this day, there was no city, no land on on the surface of the earth that was more resented to me, more detestable to me than your land. But this day, your land and your city is the most beloved to me of all the lands on earth. I declare, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa annaka Muhammadur Rasulullah. I declare that there is no God except Allah and that you are Allah's messenger. Then he said, O messenger of Allah, when your men captured me, I had already made an intention to perform Umrah and I was making preparations. Because remember, the Arabs continued with their Tradition, Umrah and Hajj, even though many of it contained, much of their, many of their rights were incorrect and had taints of polytheism and shirk. So he said, O Prophet ﷺ, when your men captured me, I had already made an intention and had made preparations to do Umrah. So what do you advise me to do? So the Prophet ﷺ said, continue, fulfill your intention and go and perform Umrah. So Thumamat ibn Uthar went to Mecca. When he arrived in Mecca and he performed the Umrah, the Quraysh, since he was a leader from Yamama, the Quraysh surrounded him, not with a hostile intention, but when they met him and they received him, because he was a nobleman, he was a chieftain, they learned that he had become a Muslim. So they said to him, O Thumama, have you become a heathen also? Have you become a heathen also with Muhammad? So he said, no, I have not become a heathen. I have become a Muslim with the Messenger of Allah. And then he said to them, listen to me. Remember I said earlier that Yamama was a very fertile region. A lot grew there, including wheat. And it was like a kind, it was a kind of breadbasket for Mecca and the other regions. So Thumamat ibn Uthal said to the Quraysh, he said, listen to me. Alone, imagine, in Mecca. He said, listen to me. From now on, not a single grain of wheat will come to you in Mecca unless the Prophet ﷺ grants permission to do so. Not a single grain of wheat. Boycotts. No supply of wheat or grain 
or any produce from the fertile region, agricultural region of Yemen. So all supplies stopped. Thumam ibn Uthar returned to Yemen. The Quraysh began to suffer because they relied on the grain and the produce of Yemen. They were in a state of war with the Prophet ﷺ. And yet they sent a message to the Prophet ﷺ saying, uh, O Muhammad ibn Abdullah, Thumama, one of your followers, has established a boycott and he is preventing all produce and grain from coming to Mecca from Yemen. The Prophet ﷺ actually sent word to Thumamut ibn Uthar and interceded on behalf of the Quraysh and said to Thumama, I intercede on behalf of the Quraysh, release the supplies to them. And he was on the instruction of the Prophet ﷺ that Thumamut ibn Uthar continued to send supplies and allowed the supply of grain and produce to continue to Makkah al-Mukarrah. Imagine, in a state of war, he interceded on behalf of the Quraysh. Even though Thumamut ibn Uthar had defiantly declared to them that not a single grain of wheat will come unless the Prophet allows it. That's how he was. Even with the mushrikeen, even with the pagans of his day. And these are authentic narrations. This is a story, this is a hadith from Bukhari. Another hadith from Bukhari which describes the Prophet ﷺ and his compassion, his character, how he was a rahmah. Allah says, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ And we have not sent you but as a mercy for the world. This is a demonstration of his mercy. Ata'u ibn Yasar, Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi relates from Ata'u ibn Yasar rahmatullahi who says, I met the companion Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As. So I said to him, "Akhbirni an sifati Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fi al-Tawrah. That, O Abdullah, inform me, tell me of the description of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the Tawrah. What is he referring to before continuing with the hadith? There's a, very, there's a set of verses in Surah Al-A'raf which are very beautiful. Allah says, and I begin from the middle of the verse, وَرَحْمَتِي وَسِعَتْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ فَسَأَكْتُبُهَا لِلَّذِينَ يَتَّقُونَ وَيُؤْتُونَ الزَّكَاةُ وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ بِآيَاتِنَا يُؤْمِنُونَ Allah says, and my mercy encompasses all things. So I will register and record and write this mercy and decree it. For those who are conscious, yattaqoon of Allah, and who give zakah, and those who believe in our signs. Who are they? Allah continues to describe them. الَّذِينَ يَتَّبِعُونَ الرَّسُولَ النَّبِيَّ الْأُمِّيَّ الَّذِي يَجِدُونَهُ مَكْتُوبًا عِنْدَهُمْ فِي التَّوْرَاتِ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ Those who follow that unlettered prophets and messenger, whom they find written, and registered by them في التورات والإنجيل in the Torah and in the Injil in the Torah and in the Gospel 
And what this verse refers to is that the description of the Prophet ﷺ and the prophecy of his coming with his signs and his character and characteristics and his noble attributes, all of this was recorded and registered and revealed to the earlier prophets and recorded and registered in their scriptures, including the Torah and in the Injil. This is why Allah says, quoting Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam in Surah Al-Saf, وَإِذْ قَالَ عِيسَى بْنُ مَرْيَمَ يَا بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ إِنِّي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ إِلَيْكُمْ مُصَدِّقًا لِمَا بَيْنَ يَدَيَّ مِنَ التَّوْرَاهِ وَمُبَشِّرًا بِرَسُولِ يَأْتِي مِنْ بَعْدِ اسْمُهُ أَحْمَدِ That our children, Isa alayhi salam said, our children of Israel, Indeed I am Allah's messenger to you. I come to affirm and ratify that which came before me of the Torah. And I come to give you glad tidings of a messenger who shall come after me, whose name will be Ahmed. So his description, his characteristics, his prophecy, the prophecy of his arrival, all of this is mentioned in the earlier scriptures. And that's why Allah mentions again elsewhere in the Qur'an that they know him just as they know their sons. They knew the Prophet ﷺ as well as they knew their sons. They knew of his signs, his characteristics, his attributes. So Atta ibn Yasar says, I met Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As and I said to him, what Allah mentions in the Qur'an, in Surah Al-A'raf, I'm paraphrasing, that his description in the Torah, what is his description? So the words of the Hadith of Bukhari are, لَقِيتُ عَبْدَ اللَّهِ ibn Amr ibn al-As فَقُلْتُ لَهُ أخبرني عن صفة رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم في التوراة. I met Abdullah ibn Amr ibn Aas. So I said to him, tell me of the description of the messenger in the Torah. So Abdullah ibn Amr, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn Aas رضي الله عنهما said, of course. والله إنه لموصوف في التوراة ببعض صفته في القرآن by Allah. He, the messenger of Allah, is described in the Torah with some of his description as is to be found in the Quran. Since Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As had studied the scriptures and learnt of them from, the, from others. And what was his description? The hadith continues. Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As said, in the Torah it's mentioned. What Allah mentions in the Quran. And this is his description. Ya ayyuhal nabiyyu inna arsalnaaka shahidan wa mubashiran wa nadheera. First of all, he quotes a verse of Surah Al-Ahzab, that, O Messenger, indeed we have sent you as a witness as a giver of glad tidings, and as a warner. Then he say, he continues with his description to be found in the Torah. وَحِرْزًا لِلْأُمِّيِّينَ أَنْتَ عَبْدِي وَرَسُولِي سَمَّيْتُكَ الْمُتَوَكِّلِ لَيْسَ بِفَضٍ وَلَا غَلِيظٍ وَلَا سَخَّابٍ فِي الْأَسْوَاقِ وَلَا يَدْفَعُ بِالسَّيِّئَةِ السَّيِّئَةِ وَلَكِنْ يَعْفُوا وَيَغْفِرْ وَلَنْ يَقْبِضَهُ اللَّهُ حَتَّى يُقِيمَ بِهِ الْمِلَّةَ العوجاء. بأن يقولوا لا إله إلا الله ويفتح بها أعينا عميا وآذانا صما وقلوبا غلفا. These are the words. Abdullah ibn Amr ibn Aas radiyallahu anhuma says that indeed he is described in the Torah with some of his description of the Quran. O Messenger of Allah, indeed we have sent you as a witness and a warner and a, as, and a giver of glad tidings and a warner. And as a fortress and a security for the unlettered people. You are my servant and my messenger. I have named you the reliant and trusting one. Neither harsh of tongue or hard of heart. 
and neither one to shout or raise his voice in the markets. He does not repel or requite evil with evil. Rather, he overlooks, excuses and forgives. And Allah will never reclaim him, i.e. take him away from the world, until Allah straightens through him the bent way of the religion. In that people begin to say, there is no God except Allah. And Allah will not reclaim him and take him away until with his religion, Allah opens up blind eyes, deaf ears, and sealed hearts. So this is a description of the Prophet ﷺ in the Torah. And indeed, that's how he was, and that's how people knew him even before they embraced Islam. And that's why another very famous story of Zayd ibn Su'unnah radiyallahu an. It's a remarkable story recorded by Imam Tabarani and in one of his ma'ajim and also by Imam ibn Abi Asim in his al-Ahad al-Mathani. A combination of the two narrations, I'll relate the story as follows. Zayd Abdullah ibn Salam radiyallahu an was a Jewish rabbi before he embraced Islam. And when he embraced Islam, became one of the closest and learned followers of the Prophet ﷺ. So he actually narrates the story. So a Jewish rabbi, Abdullah ibn, uh, Abdullah ibn who was a Jewish rabbi, he relates the story of another Jewish rabbi whose name was Zayd ibn Su'unna in Medina. Zayd ibn Su'unna, he later embraced Islam. But how did he embrace? This was his story. Zayd ibn Abdullah ibn Salam says that Zayd ibn Su'unna had studied these scriptures and was studying the person and the personality and character of the Prophet And he said to himself that, I find every single quality and characteristic that has been mentioned of the promised Prophet in our scriptures to be present and evident in Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, except for two. Every single sign and characteristic I find in him, except for two. The two characteristics which are mentioned in our scriptures, by which we will identify the promised final messenger, I have yet to see in him. And those two characteristics and qualities are, one, that his forbearance and patience overcomes any ignorance shown to him. And two, the more ignorance that is shown to him, the more patient and forbearing he becomes. So he said, I wanted to see if these two qualities were also to be found in him. So I began drawing close to him in order to study him. And I would seek opportunities of being able to observe him. So he said, one day I approached him, I was close by, when he came out of his house with Ali ibn Abi Talib, his son-in-law, Ali radiyallahu And just then, so it was only Ali radiyallahu and the Prophet sallallahu and I was close by observing and listening. Just then a rider came and said, O Prophet of Allah, I come from such and such an area. There a tribe has embraced Islam just recently, but they have been struck by famine and drought. 
And there is starvation. So a messenger of Allah, I fear that they may become disillusioned. And in their despair, they may turn away from the religion. So is there anything that you can give me to help them and provide for them? So the Prophet ﷺ turned to Ali and said to him, O Ali, the produce and the harvest from the orchard of such and such a person, is there anything remaining of that? So Ali said, no, O Messenger of Allah, there is nothing remaining. Since he intended to take some of that and give it to this Bedouin rider so that he could return to that tribe with some provisions. So Zayd ibn Su'anna says that then I realized that this was my opportunity and I seized it. So I came forward and I said, Oh Muhammad, if I give you some wealth and money now, on the understanding that you will give me the harvest of such and such an orchard, when it ripens, when the time comes. So I give you the payments now and you can give me the harvest later, the produce later. So the Prophet ﷺ said, not that particular uh, orchard, but I will give you your produce. So they agreed. So Zayd ibn Su'anna says, I opened my purse and I took out all the gold dinars that I had. In one narration, it's mentioned that he had 80 dinars and he gave them to the Prophet ﷺ, 80 gold sovereigns. Prophet ﷺ took the gold sovereign, sovereigns and gave them to the Bedouin and said, use this. And, and said to Ali radiallahu anh, they used them for provisions for that particular tribe. Zayd ibn Su'anna says, I then waited for the time of the harvest. And before, not on the day of our agreement, but a few days before our agreement, I went to claim my debts from the Prophet ﷺ. So he deliberately went before time. He says, I approached the Prophet ﷺ when he was returning from a funeral and he had his companions with him. And he was about to sit down and rest against a wall. Just before that, I approached him in the midst of his companions, a whole group. I approached him and in one narration he says, I grabbed his collar. One he grabbed the mantle and the cloak of the Messenger ﷺ and violently pulled it, so much so that it came off his noble back, the cloak. And then he said, I grabbed his collar and I twisted it. He grabbed his collar and twisted it. And he said, Oh Muhammad, where is my money? Where is my produce? I know you... All of you sons of Abdul Muttalib, referring to the whole clan of Abdul Muttalib, he said, all of you sons of Abdul Muttalib, I know you very well because I have lived amongst you and I have observed you and I've learned about you. All of you sons of Abdul Muttalib are notorious for never repaying your debts. So where is my debt? Where is my produce that you promised? The narration says that Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu was standing close by and he was trembling in rage. The words of the hadith are that he was spinning. No, no, I'll explain to you what the, what the words mean. He was spinning. Meaning his shoulders were trembling 
and spinning as though he was mustadir a round round object. If you imagine a round object and if you spin it, what happens? It when it spins and it's about to settle on the floor, it moves in that manner. True? Not spinning on its axis, but when it's about, if you take a coin and you flick the coin and it spins, initially it's rotating and spinning on its axis. But then when it's about to, when it loses momentum and it's about to fall, what you notice that instead of spinning like that, it does this before finally settling. So the narrator of the hadith says, Abdullah ibn Salam, that Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu his shoulders and his arms were spinning in that manner. Like a round object about to settle out of sheer anger. And then he, Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu and roared and said, You, he said, if it wasn't for the messenger of Allah, by Allah, I'd split your skull into two. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Zayd ibn Su'unna himself says that all the while that Umar radiallahu was roaring and threatening him in that manner, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was calmly looking at Sayyidina Umar radiallahu and smiling. And he said to him, Oh Umar, imagine, the man had just insulted him in front of all of his companions in that manner. Brushed himself against him. Pulled his cloak and mantle off him. Rung and twisted his collar violently, and then abused him and his whole clan. And the Prophet ﷺ was looking at Umar and smiling, and listened to the words he said. He never said anything to Zayd ibn Su'unna, but he said to Umar and Oh Umar, something other than this, what we both require is not for you to say this, what we both require is for you to say something other than this. Oh Umar, what, I, what we both need is for you to tell me to repay my debt and for you to tell him to request his debt in a good manner. Something other than this, oh Umar, what we, we don't need this. What we need is for you to tell me to repay my debt and for him to tell him to reclaim his debt or to claim his debt in a good manner. Then the Prophet ﷺ said to Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, Oh Umar, go with him and repay his debt. And then Sayyidina Su'unna left. Because obviously they had to collect the produce from a different area. Then the Prophet ﷺ summoned Umar radiallahu and he said to him, Oh Umar, give him 20 sa' extra. 20 sa' as I've mentioned repeatedly in Kitab al-Zakah and Kitab al-Buyu'ah. And Kitab al-Muzara'ah, Sa'a was a measurement. It wasn't a weight. Remember, Sa'a wasn't a weight. It was a measurement. It wasn't, wasn't, it was gain. It was a measurement, a scoop. So it was a cup. Uh, Sa'a was five mud, and mud was a cup. So Sa'a wasn't a weight, it was a measurement. So the Arabs used to trade in dates as a measurement rather than weight. So, and sa'a, one sa'a is equivalent approximately to three and a half kilograms, 3.5 kilograms. So 20 sa'a, given 20 sa'a extra, 70 extra kilograms of dates. And why? He said, oh Umar, give him 20 sa'a extra for you having terrified him. <laughs> give him 20 sa'a extra for you having terrified him. 
So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu went. When they met at that place for him to be paid, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu gave him the dates, and then he gave him 20 sa' extra. So he said, what's this? So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu said, the Messenger of Allah told me to give you 20 sa' extra for having terrified you. <laughs> so Zayd ibn Su'anna said to him, do you know who I am? So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu said, no, who are you? So he said, I am Zayd. So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu said, Zayd who? So he said, Zayd ibn Su'anna. So Umar radiallahu anhu had heard of him before, because he was a rabbi, famous Jewish rabbi. So he said, Zayd ibn Su'anna al-Hibr? Zayd ibn Su'anna, the rabbi? He said, yes. So he said, how could you speak to the messenger of Allah in that manner? You are a man of learning. You are a Jewish sage and a rabbi. How could someone of your caliber speak to the messenger of Allah in that manner? So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu was shot. He thought maybe he's just a Bedouin. But being a learned person and someone of the caliber and the fame of Zayd ibn Su'unna, who Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu had not recognized in person but had certainly heard of him. So he said, Zayd ibn Su'unna al-Hibr. The sage, the rabbi, he said, yes. He said, how could you, being a person of your caliber and your learning and your standing, speak to the Messenger of Allah in that manner? Then Zayd ibn Su'unna radiallahu anhu said, there's a reason for that. He said, I had studied our scriptures and I was studying the person of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And I realized that every characteristic that has been mentioned in the prophecy of the final messenger was to be found in him except for two. And those two characteristics were, one, his forbearance overcomes any ignorance shown to him. And two, the more ignorance that's shown to him, the more forbearing and patient and wiser he becomes. So he said, I wanted to ascertain and see these two characteristics for myself. So all of this I did as a ploy to see and to witness and to ascertain and determine these two characteristics in the messenger. And he said, oh, Umar... I am. I bear witness that there is no God except Allah, and that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is his messenger. He actually mentioned these words that I am content with Allah as a Lord, with Islam as a religion, and with the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam as a messenger of Allah. He said, "Take me to the messenger of Allah, and O Umar, I make you a witness that I have great wealth. Half of my wealth this day I donate to the fuqara of the Muslims." Then he went to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and declared his Islam. That same Zayd ibn Su'unnah radiyallahu anh, as they say, for Hasuna Islam, or his Islam was good, it became good, and he did not survive for very long because he died in one of the battles as a shaheed. But he was a Jewish rabbi. That story beautifully illustrates what the Qur'an mentions, what the Hadith mentions, did not the, in the scriptures, in the Torah, from the Hadith of Abdullah ibn Amr al-As, isn't it mentioned? لَيْسَ بِفَضٍ وَلَا غَلِيظٍ Neither is he harsh of tongue or hard of heart, and وَلَا يَدْفَعُ بِالسَّيِّئَةِ السَّيِّئَةِ وَلَكِنْ يَعْفُوا وَيَغْفِرُ And he does not requite and repel evil with evil, rather he overlooks, excuses, and forgives. That is exactly what's mentioned in the Torah, what's reported in Bukhari, what Zayd ibn Su'unnah radiallahu anh had seen in the scriptures, and that he had tested the Prophet with. That's how he was Rasulullah a rahmah for everyone. 
And not just for the Muslims, and not just to individuals, but to all groups of people. Allah mentions in Surah Al-Anfal that the Prophet's presence was a deterrent for the punishment of Allah. Allah says, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيَعَذِّبَهُمْ وَأَنْتَ فِيهِمْ And Allah is not one to punish them as long as you are amongst them. I.e. the Quraysh of Mecca. وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ مُعَذِّبَهُمْ وَهُمْ يَسْتَغْفِرُونَ And Allah is not one to punish them as long as they continue to do istighfar and seek forgiveness. This is the power of istighfar. In this one verse, Allah equates istighfar with the presence of the Prophet ﷺ as a deterrent of punishment, for punishment. Of course, they're not equated. What I mean is, Allah says about the Quraysh that Allah will not punish them as long as you are present amongst them. And Allah will not punish them as long as they continue to seek forgiveness. So, he was a blessing and a rahmah. His presence was a deterrent for, for punishment. And it saved and protected the mushrikeen despite what they were doing to him. He was mercy. And not only for the mushrikeen, but even for the munafiqeen, the hypocrites. In Surah At-Tawbah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Qur'an quotes the, the hypocrites of Medina. And the Qur'an says, وَمِنْهُمُ الَّذِينَ يُؤْذُونَ النَّبِيَّ وَيَقُولُونَ هُوَ أُذْهُمْ And there are those amongst them, i.e. the people of Medina, meaning the hypocrites, who hurt and trouble the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and say insultingly of him, He is soft of ear. And what's the meaning of soft of ear? I.e. he's credulous. He believes anything. They say he is soft of ear. That he believes anything. So the hypocrites... They began to taunt, obviously not publicly or in front of him, but amongst themselves. They began to taunt the Messenger ﷺ and describe him as being soft of character, soft as a person, even soft of ear. As a warrior nation, and as being the people they were, they obviously valued hardness and aggression. And in contrast, they saw the Prophet ﷺ, they never accused him of being a coward, but his demeanor, his behavior, his character, the way he carried himself was so noble, and he was so soft, that the hypocrites actually used that to taunt him. And they said, he's soft of ear also. And the meaning of soft of ear is that he believes anything. Anything anyone says to him, he believes them, and he's credulous. And indeed, that's what the hypocrites would do. They'd go to him and they'd lie, and the Prophet ﷺ would humor them. He wouldn't say anything to them. Allah tests the believers. When the Prophet ﷺ returned from Tabuk, Allah had already informed him on the journey. That the hypocrites will come to you and they will present their excuses for having not joined you on this expedition. So... Prophet sallallahu when he returned, the words of the Qur'an were fulfilled. The hypocrites came to him. And they said all manner of things to him. And the Prophet sallallahu listened to every one of them. Didn't say a word to them. But the, there were three believers who had failed to join the Prophet sallallahu on expedition. The Prophet sallallahu didn't humor them. They were tested for their repentance. That's another story. So the hypocrite said he is soft of ear. He believes anything anyone tells him. 
and is credulous. Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Do you know why? And they say he is soft of ear. Say he is soft of ear in seeking good for you. The Prophet Allah, Allah forbid, was not unintelligent. He was not unaware. He was alert. More alert than any human being could be. More intelligent than any human being could be. More aware than any human being could be. But despite his awareness and his alertness, the Prophet ﷺ in his compassion, in his forgiveness, he overlooked. And always seeking the best, he accepted anything that anyone told him, if it meant good for them. And if it meant good for the believers. And even for the hypocrites. The verse continues, He believes in Allah and he trusts the believers. He trusts the believers. And most importantly, He is a mercy for those believers, those of you who are believers. He was a mercy for everyone, including the believers. How was he a mercy for the believers? In Surah At-Tawbah, Allah mentions, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِّنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِ مَا عَنِدْتُمْ حَرِيسٌ عَلَيْكُمْ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَؤُوفُ الرَّحِيمُ Indeed, a messenger has come to you. From amongst you. عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِ مَا عَنِدْتُمْ Whatever you suffer bears down heavily on him. حَرِيسٌ عَلَيْكُمْ He is desirous of your welfare and your interests. He is compassionate and merciful to the believers. This is a description of the Messenger of Allah. That's exactly how he was. With his ummah, with the believers. Prophet ﷺ himself declared in Surah Al-Ahzab, Allah says, The Prophet is closer to the believers than their own souls. And indeed, the Prophet ﷺ loved the believers more than they can love themselves. And he was concerned and showed more compassion for the believers than they can be concerned and they can actually show compassion to themselves. And a beautiful example. We always want to give, we always want to take rather than give. The Prophet ﷺ never wanted to take, he always wanted to give. A perfect example is, it's hadith related by Imam Bukhari. He says, Imam Bukhari rahmatullah, he relates from the companions, that the Prophet wasallam he made an announcement with the following words, أَنَا أَوْلَى بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ مِنْ أَنفُسِهِمْ Quoting the verse of Surah Al-Ahzab, that I am closer to the believers than their own souls. Now, when we look at that verse, how do we see it? We see it to mean that the Prophet ﷺ is closer to the believers than their own souls. That is, they should love him more than they love themselves. So we look at it from our angle. The Prophet ﷺ, it would have been in his personal interest to look at it from that angle. If he was an imposter, ma'adullah. He could have said, look, the Qur'an says you have to love me more than you love yourselves. But he was a messenger of Allah. So he never looked at anything from his perspective with his interest in mind, with his interest in view. Rather, he looked at it with the interest of the believers at heart. 
So when he looked at this verse, what did he say? This is what he announced. He said, I am closer to the believers than their own souls. So from now on, whenever any believer dies, and he leaves behind wealth, that wealth is for his inheritors and successors and family. But if he leaves behind a debt, then because I am closer to the believers than their own souls, I will take care of that debt. Allah. Allahu Akbar. Whoever leaves behind a debt, I will take care of his debt. But if he leaves behind wealth, his wealth is for his family. Allahu Akbar. This is how he was. Imam Muslim, rahmatullahi alayhi, relates a beautiful hadith about the Prophet sallallahu concern for his ummah. Before I mention the hadith of Imam Muslim, let me mention another hadith of Bukhari. Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim both relate that the Prophet sallallahu said, لِكُلِّ نَبِيٍ دَعْوَةٌ مُسْتَجَابَةٌ وَأَنَا أُرِيدُ أَنَا أَخْتَبِئَ دَعْوَتِي Every prophet has a dua, a prayer, which is always answered. And we know from other ahadith and from the verses of the Qur'an that all the prophets have expired their dua because they used it. Prophet ﷺ continues in this hadith, and I wish to reserve my accepted dua so that with it, I may intercede on behalf of my ummah in the hereafter. And Imam Muslim rahmatullahi relates a hadith in his sahih from the same Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As anhuma. It's a beautiful hadith. He says, once the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam recited the verse of Surah Ibrahim in which Allah quotes Ibrahim alayhi salam where he prayed to Allah with the words Rabbi innahunna adlalna kathiran minan nas faman tabi'ani fa'innahu minni waman asani fa'innaka ghafoorur rahim Oh my Lord, this is Ibrahim alayhi salam praying Oh my Lord, indeed they, the idols have led astray many of the people So oh Allah, whoever of the people follows me, he is of me and whoever of the people disobeys me, Ibrahim alayhi salam did not pray against them or curse them. Rather, he prayed to Allah with the words, whoever follows me is of me, and whoever disobeys me, فَإِنَّكَ غَفُورٌ rahim. Then, O oh Allah, indeed you are the most forgiving, most merciful. Then the Prophet wasallam read the verse of Surah Al-Ma'idah, in which Allah quotes what Sayyidina Isa ibn Maryam alayhi salam will say on the day of reckoning. And what, did, what will Isa alayhi salam say? On the day of reckoning, Allah quotes him in Surah Al-Ma'idah, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa recited this verse. إِن تُعَذِّبْهُمْ فَإِنَّهُمْ عِبَادُكَ وَإِن تَخْفِلْ لَهُمْ فَإِنَّكَ أَمْتَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ Oh my Lord, if you punish them, then after all they are your servants. But if you forgive them, then indeed you are almighty, all-wise. So both prophets prayed for the forgiveness of their ummah. Having read these two verses, the Prophet ﷺ raised his hands and began weeping with the words, Ummati, Ummati, my Ummah, my Ummah. So Jibreel ﷺ was summoned by Allah. And he said to him, O Jibreel, 
Go and ask Muhammad, even though your Lord knows best. What makes him weep? So Jibreel came to the Prophet and he said, Oh Muhammad, your Lord asks, even though your Lord knows best, what makes you weep? So the Prophet said, My Ummah, my Ummah. Jibreel went back to Allah, related the information to him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to him, Oh Jibreel, go back to Muhammad and inform him we will make you happy and content in your ummah and we will not hurt you in your ummah. It's a hadith of Muslim. And this is mentioned in the Quran, well in Surah Al-Duha, that, and your Lord shall give you until you are content. A beautiful story about this Sayyidina Ali radiyallahu anhu. Ibn Murduwayy rahmatullahi relates this in his tafsir, and so do others, that Ali radiyallahu an, when he went to Iraq, he addressed the people of Iraq, and he said to them, O people of Iraq, Indeed, the most hopeful verse in your view in the entire Qur'an. And then he cited the verse of Surah Al-Zumar. That indeed the most... Hopeful verse. The verse that gives you people of Iraq the most hope in the Quran is قُلْ يَا عِبَادِيَ الَّذِينَ أَسْرَفُوا عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ لَا تَقْنَطُوا مِنْ رَحْمَةِ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهِ يَغْفِرُ الذُّنُوبِ جَمِيعًا إِنَّهُ هُوَ الْغَفُورُ الرَّحِيمُ That the verse that gives you the most hope in the Quran is the one which Allah says Say, O my servants, who have transgressed against themselves, do not despair of the mercy of Allah. Indeed, Allah forgives all sins. Indeed, he's most forgiving, most merciful. But, O oh, people of Iraq, the verse that gives me the most hope in the entire Quran is the verse of Surah Al-Duha, where Allah says, <coughs> And soon your Lord shall give you until you are content. And the Prophet of Allah will never be content until every member of his ummah has been forgiven. That was the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam not only was he an, a personification, an embodiment of mercy, but his sharia, his teachings were also a mercy. And he came to relieve the ummah of its burden. And not just the ummah, but the whole world. That's why Allah mentions in that verse of Surah Al-A'raf, which I mentioned earlier at the beginning, those who follow the unlettered messenger and prophets, whose mention they find in the Torah and in the Injil by them. يأمرهم بالمعروف وينهاهم عن المنكر ويحل لهم الطيبات ويحرم عليهم الخبائث ويضع عنهم إسرهم والأغلال التي كانت عليهم. He enjoins the good to them and forbids them from evil. He makes lawful for them the good and pure things and makes unlawful for them the impure things. ويضع عنهم إسرهم والأغلال التي كانت عليهم and he removes from them their bad. And the shackles that bound them. Indeed, this is the reality of the sunnah and the teachings of the Messenger His teachings and the teachings of the Qur'an that he brought are not a burden. He came and he brought the Qur'an to relieve the people of their burden. To remove the burden off the people. Not just the Arabs, but the whole world. His teachings... And the teachings of the Qur'an that he brought are not meant to fetter and to shackle people. 
They are meant or to imprison them. They are meant to liberate them, to unfetter them, to remove the shackles from them as the Qur'an explicitly states. And this is true for all the teachings of the Qur'an, for the hadith, as Allah mentions in Surah Al-Baqarah, يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ بِكُمُ الْيُسْرَ وَلَا يُرِيدُ بِكُمُ الْعُسْرَ Allah wishes ease for you, Allah does not wish difficulty for you. And in Surah Al-Hajj, Allah mentions, مَا جَعَلَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي الدِّينِ مِنْ حَرْجٍ And He has not placed any burden upon you in the religion. Verse after verse of the Qur'an states this. I'll end with just one example. In, even in Surah Al-Ahzab, when addressing the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, having mentioned some of the laws of hijab and other laws relating to the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, after mentioning some of the do's and don'ts, some of the prescriptions and the obligations and the prohibitions, the Qur'an says, addressing the wives of the Messenger ﷺ, إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ لِيُذْهِبَ عَنْكُمُ الرِّجْسَ أَهْلَ الْبَيْتِ وَيُطَاهِرَكُمْ تَطْهِيرًا Allah only wishes to remove all impurity from you, O members of the household, and to purify you a thorough purification. Meaning these laws are not meant to burden you, to oppress you, to shackle you, to overwhelm you, to imprison you. Rather they are meant to liberate, to uplift, to elevate you, to accord you honour and dignity. And, most importantly, to purify you and to remove all manner of impurity from you. This is true for all of the teachings of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This shows that His teachings were a mercy, just as He Himself was an embodiment of mercy. We pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to realize this rahmah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in his person, in his teachings, in his sunnah, and in the Qur'an that he brought, in the religion that he brought. And that, that rahmah is not just for the ummah of the Prophet ﷺ, but it's for the whole of mankind, for all of the worlds. I end with the very verse which I began with. Allah says in Surah Al-Anbiya, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ And we have not sent you, but as a mercy for all the worlds. <coughs> صلى الله وسلم على عبده ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on double zero double four one two one double seven one three triple seven or by email via sales at akstore.com Produced under license by Alcotha Productions All rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.